forever. Dog. Sex. Isn't it crazy? What is it? Why do we do it? How come it happens? How come it doesn't happen sometimes? These are the questions that keep me up at night. And I was very, very grateful to find a podcast called Sexology, where a really, really, really smart doctor discusses sex in a way that is much more advanced than my tiny pea brain can handle. But, But listeners, you'll love it because she talks about sex in relation to all these different social issues and all the different types of relationships that might you might experience and she's great so I asked her to be on the podcast and I can't believe she agreed because she's so cool and busy and awesome and she runs a practice in Los Angeles and has this podcast her name is Dr. Nazneen Moali and she is a clinical psychologist and sex therapist and I really wanted to ask her like basically everything I just feel like there's no good place to get information on sex there's no expert on TV. There's no one book we can all turn to. Really, not just the physical part of sex, but all the other stuff and what it's supposed to look like in a relationship and how to know you are having a good sex life and how to get one if you're not. So I'm so appreciative that Dr. Nas came on the show and uh, she's just going to tear through some myths like you will not believe. Everyone, we are welcomed right now by such a phenomenal guest. I have been a fan of her podcast for so long. It's called Sexology. She is a clinical psychologist and sex therapist. Please welcome Dr. Nazneen Moali. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for our conversation. I'm so excited to have you here. So what I specifically sort of bombarded you with before this episode was just truly like a list of all of the common misconceptions, or maybe they're facts, just things that I feel are in the zeitgeist about sex and relationships. And I want once and for all for an expert to just tell us either that we're very, very stupid or that we're right and just sort of get your take on all of these commonly held beliefs, if that's cool. Yes, uh, this is great because I think, again, it's not a matter of intelligence. (laughs) It's just a matter of we are fed so much misconception when it comes to sexuality. So I'm very excited to talk about all these great things that you sent me. Awesome. So for people who don't know, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you do and your work. So, I mean, your profession is truly so fascinating. When I say sex therapist, I feel like I'm one of the people who doesn't really know what goes into that. So I'd love to know about what your work looks like and what you do day to day. Oh, thank you. Uh, So I'm a clinical psychologist. What I do is I'm familiar and uh, capable of treatment of all sorts of mental health challenges, including like depression, anxiety. My true specialties are eating disorder, treatments of eating disorders and sex therapy. And I love working with sex therapy uh, clients because it's fascinating as we were talking about it. You know, only with few sessions you can see such a transformation because at times part of the issue that we all got so much misinformation and wrong information when it comes to our sexuality and how we can do better, what are some of the things that we can enhance our pleasure. So uh, I love it in the sense that 
it gives me opportunity, even if it means like giving people psychoeducation about how how can they change like you know the, their understanding of sex, how can they improve their uh, sexual experiences. So as far as my day-to-day practice, so I, I work as a, at my private practice in Los Angeles. Um, so most of the people who are coming to private practice, they're coming for personal growth. So I certainly worked at hospitals, residentials, which those are the locations and places that people are going when there's an acute crisis going on. For example, someone having a psychosis, mental breakdown. But usually when people coming in to uh, outpatient private practice like mine, they're coming in because they want to problem solve some of the issues that they have. Mm-hmm. With my specialty with sex therapy, I work with individuals and couples. Most of my practice, because my office is in the South Bay, are uh, individuals who have, have some kind of a sexual dysfunctions or there is something going on in their sex life that is not working for them. So we work together to understand what is some of the underlying issues that's going on for them and uh, what we can do as far as tools uh, that, that can help them to implement and improve their sexual experiences. That's amazing, especially like what you were talking about with sexuality and sexual relationships that can be something you can work on that has a deeper meaning, it has a reason behind it, and you can affect people's lives bigger picture. It's sort of like one way to affect someone's life. So it's cool to think of it. And especially on your podcast, you do a great job of this. It's like sexuality and blank, like the relationship sexuality has to everything else in people's lives is super fascinating. So that's really cool. Thank Um, you. Are there certain common questions you get asked, like if people come into your practice that you hear more often than others, or like an underlying question that sort of you hear more often than others? So as far as underlying common experience that I see in my clients in my private practice is the struggle they have around shame mm. when it comes to sexuality. They kind of they got socialized through society, through their religion, through their peers and parents that you know uh, sex can be pleasurable, but it's a sin. Good girls, they don't have good sex. You're a slut if you're engaging in sexual behavior and all this conflicting messages. So part of our work is kind of helping them to integrate their sexual energy and sexual schema to their true personality and they can find their sexual values. And I genuinely believe sexual health is a matter of human rights. We all are, have this right to experience sex and pleasure. So I think shame is one of them. Mm. The other thing that I notice with couples, it comes up a lot, is mismatched libido. Mm-hmm. One partner wants more sex. The other partner doesn't want to have sex. And usually the challenge with that is, again, all relationship goes through uh, ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's normal at time, you know, one partner might want to have sex more, the other partner might not be interested. But what happens at times, a uh, couple gets stuck in this cycle and it goes on for years and years mm-hmm. and leads to so many secondary issues like infidelity or resentment or emotional disconnection. So that's something else that people coming in and say, you know, my partner doesn't want to have sex with me or my partner doesn't find me desirable. So when we get to it, there can be 
number of different reasons that contributes to what's going on. That's so interesting. I think th those two are so interesting too because we dealing with shame and not knowing how to have conversations about sex, I'd imagine it's just very helpful to go into a professional's office and be able to talk about these things and have a constructive, helpful conversation that you know is going to be you know, led by an expert instead of where we all are, which sometimes feels like we don't know how to talk about these things. We, we feel ashamed to talk about them. So I'd imagine it's also if you're going into that office, you're already making a great step in terms of your relationship. Absolutely. And it provides people with opportunity to fact check because at time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I had this couple that just recently worked, the female was feeling so rejected, so uh, kind of her, she, she told us that she lost her confidence because her partner wasn't interested in having sex with her. So she kind of personalized in the way that he doesn't, doesn't desire me. Mm -hmm. But what was going on was the, uh, the male partner was a heterosexual relationship. The guy was struggling with acute form of OCD. Oh, and his wow. obsessional compulsion, obsession and compulsion was getting in the way of him getting aroused. Oh, it had nothing to do, yeah, with the wife or uh, with the partner. But again, just they never talked about it. Interesting. That's fascinating. Wow. And yeah, that's just something that like I would assume would never have been a conversation had they not walked into your office. That's really, really cool. And on your podcast, you talk about so many different issues related to sexuality and the many complications that arise in relationships and the many things that are just common themes throughout all people as sexual beings. So I was wondering what inspired you to start it. It's so good and it really feels like there isn't another podcast out there like it. Oh, thank you so much for all this encouragement and kind <laughs> words. I really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, it was for me, it was partly personal and partly professional. So when I was in graduate school, I was working at different research facilities, doing research on addiction and depression, all like these sort of thing. But what happened is I was in this relationship, which was monogamous with a partner, and for it was a long-term partner, and I never in my entire life had issues around sexuality. I was so lucky that I never had any struggle. So what happened is about like two years in the relationship, I started like what appeared to me out of blue. I started having this like uh, sexual challenges. I didn't want to have sex. I was experiencing pain during our sexual uh, relation, and like many couple, we didn't think about it as much. So we waited out. It got worse, and um, I'm a big. Uh, advocate of therapy and I, I've always been in therapy. I think it's a part of my self-care and personal growth. So what I thought is I would go to a couple therapist uh, that, would, that, that the person will help us to resolve the issue. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting back then, I didn't know that all, not all couple therapists are trained in uh, sexuality. Mm. So we were going out to this therapist where I think we went for six, seven months. We were talking about everything but sex. We were talking about relationship. We got really in, good into conversation, communication. Things were great, except that it, we didn't notice any difference in like the sexual present common sexual problem that I had. And mm -hmm. it just we, we were not intimate. And then that relationship ended. 
And afterward, I went to the sex therapist for just a few sessions. I think the total session that we went was like seven or eight sessions. She gave me exercises. We talked about different things specific to the challenge I had. And the issue completely resolved. Wow. This story was for like 10 years ago. I never had an issue, which made me wonder. I was like, oh, my God, I want to do what she does mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was very powerful, very helpful, and it was very targeted. So that was one of the other reasons. And I felt, okay, this is something I want to do. But also professionally, I feel like, you know, many things in our life, many of our challenges also connected to our sexuality and how how we experience pleasure. Mm-hmm. So that's why I felt that was another kind of a, with that training that added so much to my perspective as a clinical psychologist. That's really cool, especially when you go into therapy and the specialty aspect of it is so interesting. I would feel so comforted knowing that whatever I bring to you, you've probably seen before or it's not that, you know, crazy of a thing that I'm bringing to you. Because if you're an expert and you're specialized in this, then you know that you're talking to someone who already understands and you're already an expert on the topic. So I'd imagine that's also cool to like have the sort of you build the repertoire with your patients and the trust because you know this area so well. So that's awesome too. Thank you. Um, So given what we were talking about before, I do, I mean, everybody sees this. There's so much shame talking about sex. There's so many misconceptions. And uh, it's hard to know where to go for the right information. Like there's no authority and there's no book and there's no person that has the answers. So I wanted to bring up some of the common misconceptions or just beliefs people have and get your take on them. So once and for all, we can know a bit more about these just sort of zeitgeisty ideas. So the first one I've heard that I know a lot of people have heard is that men and women are wired differently, that men are wired to seek multiple partners and women are wired to nest. And that has an evolutionary basis and that you can't help it. And that's why men cheat a lot. And that's why women want to get married. So I want to talk about that. Is there any truth in that? You know, I haven't read like studies that are valid in the field of clinical psychologists showing us like, you know, neural pathway that kind of approves that or approve that this is how men's brain are wired. So mm-hmm. I think like, you know, part of it is just based on uh, people's observations throughout the years. And I truly think part of it is socialization. Because, you know, as as boys in high school, middle school, they've been they're going to be perceive or they are been perceived as cool, uh, popular if they have multiple partners, but the same doesn't apply to females. So I think part of it is socialization, but I think it's, I definitely necessarily don't see that in my practice. In my clinical practice, I, so, I see at times that men, men are who are very interested and in committing they're interested in long-term relationship. And I have female clients that they, they're not interested in that. They want to have non-monogamous relationships and they're navigating it well. So I don't know if we have uh, a strong scientific proof for that. Yeah, especially with uh, socialization. I think a lot of people lately have becoming more aware of the alternate paths to 
you know, experiencing love and sex other than monogamy, because maybe for a while it was sort of the norm was you do things a certain way. And I think the more people are getting information online and sharing information, it just feels like women, especially I know are definitely not always interested in the nesting monogamous married path as much as maybe they, you know, were socialized to be in the past. Right. Um, and then what about the belief you mentioned earlier, sometimes there's mismatched libido. Do men want more sex than women generally? You know, that's so funny that you mentioned that. You should, I mean, I wish there was no confidentiality and you guys could be part of my, uh, see my clinical case because mm-hmm. I would say it is so many, so many women that I know that they are in sex stop marriages. Mm. They are relationship that they certainly want sex more than their partners they have a higher libido and it's hard for so many reasons first of all uh, we are learning that usually men have to have higher libido so if female the partner is not pursuing them as much the message that I see some of my clients say that you know uh, he's not into me he's not attracted to me there's something wrong with it I hear hosts of kind of different things. Maybe he is gay, but that's not true. I think like men like women, they have they are in different range uh, when it comes to their uh, desire, their libido. There are so many things also can play uh, into our level of uh, sexual arousal and how we experience desire. Stress is one of the common factors that impacts it, our hormone, our age our genetics. So I I definitely don't think this one is right. (laughs) Okay, good to know. Good to know. Um, What about the belief that it's only cheating if there's sex involved? Well, I guess it gets into what is the fidelity agreement Mm -hmm. between the couples. Because I think sometimes uh, people, the couples, they don't talk about this things about what do you think is, is cheating? Just talking to other person is cheating. Does messaging your ex is cheating? Uh, so usually they come in after an infidelity, and at times the partner could say, you know, I had no idea uh, that my wife or my uh, my girlfriend or my boyfriend would think this is cheating. So I think if in your fidelity agreement you guys agree to, you know, uh, the only way of cheating is having uh, sex, yes. But I have, if I work with non-monogamous couples that they even don't consider sex as a cheating because that's part of the agreement they have. So that's so cool because that ties to this episode we did where I talked with a couple who is in an open relationship. And I thought going in, wow, how do you navigate that? That seems so complicated. How do you deal with jealousy? How do you know where to draw the line? And what truly blew my mind was that they talked about it beforehand. The idea of a fidelity agreement had never come to mind for me, that you would talk about something before it's a problem. So I totally understand that because I think a lot of people don't talk about that stuff and then someone may do something that they don't even know is cheating and it's sort of like, oh, you just should have talked about that before. Seems like an easy easy way to avoid the situation. Absolutely. Uh, so what about the belief that there's a certain number of times per week a couple should be having sex? I don't know if I've, I feel like I've heard it's healthy to have sex one or two times a week. And if you're not, then it's a sign that the relationship's suffering. Is there a number that 
you think people should keep in mind? You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because, you know, every uh, couple that I see in my practice or even among my friends, people think other people are having more sex. Mm-hmm. So that's the common anxiety for people. But again, truly, it doesn't matter how often are you sexual with your partner. It comes to your level of arousal and how satisfied you are with sexual experiences you have. Because again, you can have multiple uh, sexual experiences during the week, but you might not find them fulfilling. The other way that I talk to couples in my practice about to help them to navigate where they are in with their sexual uh, desire and sexual arousal is I tell them, uh, like imagine you're on vacation, you have no stressor in this ideal world, uh, world. How often do you want to have sex? For some people, it's you know maybe once a week, maybe once every other week, and for some people, it's every day. So I think it's truly different for every person and every couple. And uh, it's also it's important. I think it's more about the quality for most people versus quantity. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea of talking about things, mind-blowing. And I think that's like a big takeaway is that you can have the conversation about what would be what where you're at with your libido and what you want in your uh, couplehood. And instead of expecting it to just be a certain number and that's like what everyone needs to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the idea that most women can only orgasm through clitoral stimulation? You know, with this one, it's tough because I think the research actually shows that that is accurate. Back in the days, they were thinking the only uh, way of Freud was talking about having the mature kind of orgasm is through uh, a kind of vaginal uh, penetration orgasm. But, you know, um, there's, there was this new wonderful book about orgasm Dr. Lori Mintz published it recently. And I think in this study that she was talking about, some, some number around 70 to 80% of women uh, experience uh, orgasm through clitoral stimulation. But again, I don't think there is. So this, these statistics are great. But I had certain clients that they experience or orgasm through uh, clitoral stimulation to their G spot. So I think it's not necessarily uh, there is one way. That's the correct way. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Every perf- every body is perfect, just the way it is. That's what I'm taking away from that one. <laughs> um, what about the belief that if you, especially in a married couple, are together for a long time, that the passion will always fade? Because, I mean, I know a lot of us don't have, like, the best models for that from our parents, not naming any names. But does passion (laughs) always fade over time? You know, I I don't, I wouldn't say always. But one thing that I tell my clients is, you know, getting uh, getting in the long-term relationship is not like your happy ending. It's like what you do afterward, it does Mm. really matter, you know, it's in order to uh, keep your sexual relationship exciting and wonderful and fulfilling. I think every couple in a long relationship, long-term relationship, they need to work on it. Mm-hmm. They need to put it as a priority because I see, especially with married couples that have been together for kind of decade or so, then uh, sex become a less of a priority. Or you know, at times, couple like what what's what we know as of now as too much uh, familiarity can kill desire. Hmm. So you 
going to continue having some small kind of mystery, mystery in the relationship oh, or, you know, kind of like being able to see your partner through different eyes and different lens. And I think, again, these are, you can have wonderful long-term sexual relationships. It's just a matter of uh, being intentional about it and making sure you're doing things that uh, keeps the sex hot and the passion going in a long-term relationship. You just debunked two very common beliefs that I am very happy you did. One is like this idea that I think is perpetuated by The Bachelor and all that kind of stuff, that marriage is the happy ending, that when you get the wedding, it's good, like you just chill. But Mm -hmm. what you're saying is that it's work and that if you're committed in a long-term relationship, there's not the happy ending, it's work. And the second one is I think also just from The Bachelor, it's this idea that when you are a couple, you do everything together, all of a sudden your whole lives are merged, but it's actually healthier if you have your own thing going on, that you have your own life as well. Absolutely, yes. Take note, Chris Harrison. Um, What about (laughs) the belief you should never go to bed angry? I mean, only if we had, like, our emotions were working like a switch. Mm, that's true. <laughs> that yeah, because then I would never go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> we are not in control of our emotion. We all get to have our emotions. Like, again, I guess we can suppress them or, like, distract ourselves. <laughs> but they're, they're push, uh, push back and they come on surface. So I don't think this is a real uh, reasonable goal to have. Hopefully, we know how to... Uh, kind of cope with our anger, how to self-regulate, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it's a reliable goal to say, you know, I'm never going to feel angry. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder where that bed. one came from. Like the idea, maybe that someone's going to die suddenly in their sleep, and you'll regret going to bed angry. I mean, it feels like if you, if you can sleep angry, you're already ahead of the game because most of us are just up mad all night. But I guess it's something about like you should always work to resolve the fight before. You go to bed. I, I think that is unrealistic. Sometimes it's a deeper issue or something you're working on and you're going to have days where you just don't feel good. That's okay. Um, okay. And then this is one I think some of the listeners might be wondering about. Uh, who benefits from couples therapy? I think there may be a common belief that if you're on the verge of breaking up or divorce, that's when you go to couples therapy. And I have a feeling that's not true. I I want to talk about like who would, who is the right person to consider couples therapy? Well, you know, statistics shows that people on average wait seven years prior to going to couple therapy when, when the issue rises. So mm. they wait about like, you know, seven years and they say, oh, maybe we have to go to therapy. Wow. That is That's so long. That is so long wow. and I, so much can happen during those years. You're, you can totally emotionally get dis, disengaged with the partner. You might become interested in someone else. So yeah. many things can change. And that's why the kind of tra- uh, traditional couple therapy success rate, they say it's about 50 to 60 per, uh, 60%. Because what happens is people coming in when it's too late. Mm. You know, it takes so much more financial resources, emotional resources. And, you know, it's just, it's harder to recover when there's, there is no, uh, so much anger and resentment and frustration. Usually, ideally, you want to 
think about it as a, a kind of the way you go to take like take your car for service. Mm-hmm. When couples have some kind of conflict that I would say it lasts more than two, three months, mm-hmm. they can go into couple therapy, like to use it as a third person that helps them to kind of resolve the issue. And then maybe at that point, the session would be kind of four or five session might be sufficient. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, there was, there is a case of infidelity, there's so many other things involved when you're going in after seven years might take years. So I think it's ideal to go right after you notice this is something uh, that takes, takes longer for recover, for, for you to recover uh, than it's usual. And it's been in past. For example, I would say like, you know, two to three months, if you're seeing there's an issue Mm -hmm. that would, then that would be a good time to go. Oh, that's interesting. And then seeing it as we're going in at the very least, just to get a third party, uh, opinion and to have a constructive way to talk about it and a place to go and work through it instead of seeing it as like, well, we have to like fix everything. It's sort of, this isn't going away. So let's just find a new way to address it. Uh, right. And the yeah. other time, I'm sorry to interrupt oh, no, you, please. that people go to couple therapy is when uh, they want to kind of introduce something, especially with sex therapy, uh, new in the relationship and they want to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to open up the relationship. Maybe they want to kind of uh, do try a swinging. I have clients that they work on that or they become a polyamorous and they want to see what would the best way of approaching this. So I guess like there are multiple reasons for people to start therapy. That's so interesting. Never would have thought of that. And there are other common beliefs or ideas that you see either in the media or you hear or people bring into your office that you wish you could just debunk once and for all that bothers you because it's like, why are people still saying this? Yeah, I guess a couple come to my mind. One is like I feel uh, one of the challenges that many people have, they think when there are issues around sexuality, for example, if sex is painful, there's always an issue with sexual abuse in the past. Mm. Or, you know, they think, you know, there are kind of at times instead of kind of thinking, okay, so we might all experience some kind of sexual challenges in in our life and what we should do. uh, People kind of think about, okay, if this is an issue, there must be something horrible happened Mm -hmm. uh, in the past. So I think that's one of them. Um, The other one is, uh, the other one that's interesting that um, is about, you know, male uh, sexuality, Mm -hmm. I guess, like one of the things is around arousal and uh, people think about it, like people should get aroused on demand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, we always talk about, and also for female, the 2020 rule, like it takes about 20 minutes of foreplay and then 20 minutes of like actual intercourse because people watch pornography and, you know, in porn, it's kind of this, um, beautiful way that they put everything together and you see like people see each other two minutes later they are moving on to uh having a penetration and she like orgasms immediately right the the, the girl orgasm immediately the guy has the extremely firm erection (laughs) that's not how things work yeah not for male or female so i think if you're above age 18 (laughs) yeah or then to take a pause and think okay it might take you a while to get to the place you want with the level of arousal. Yeah, I'm curious now that we're talking about it, about porn and how you see it affecting people's beliefs about sexuality. I mean, I can't imagine how many false ideas 
people are getting about how it works and what their partner would want and and how like what success looks like in sex. It just feels like it's such a pervasive image and we don't have a lot of other places to go to know what quote unquote normal sexual relationships look like. Right. I think I tell all of my clients, I'm not against pornography, mm -hmm. but it's the same way that if you're looking at a romantic comedy, wanted to learn about a true love uh, life, uh, like love, that's not accurate. Mm -hmm. And porn is not sex education. <laughs> that's a great so, parallel. Like yeah. imagining it as the rom-com version of sex is so yeah. funny to me because it's like, I can just, I suddenly understand that we're mapping on true insanity and a fantasy that is nothing like real life. That's so right. interesting. Because yeah, I don't know where people go to like get a reasonable model of what sex looks like. I guess there are books, there are books about sexuality and especially I know there's, you know, more discussion in uh, some of those books too lately that I've seen about female um, orgasm and, you know, debunking some of the beliefs about how, what a successful you know, sexual experience is for a woman and like how to do it. But it just feels like porn is so pervasive. It's a really hard thing for people to shake of what the expectation is. Right. Um, so we also have, this is so helpful and so fascinating. We have a listener question uh, that I wanted to field. And I know that we're obviously not in a place to give this specific person particular advice. Like she's not your patient and I'm clearly nobody. But um, I want to ask about what she brought up because she feels that she's experiencing something called intergenerational trauma. And I recently heard about this. So this is the trauma that gets passed down through generations. And um, so, yeah, not discussing her specific situation and what she uh, is asking about in her own life. I was wondering if we could talk about a bigger picture and what, uh, what, what that means and what that looks like. Sure. Uh, so the way I understand intergenerational trauma is the sort of the trauma that you uh, personally might have not experienced that. For example, I had a client in the past that was a second generation uh, of a, a Holocaust survivor. Mm. And he was telling me about all the uh, fear that the parents had obviously going through that trauma that their their grand uh, their parents gonna pass to them kind of being always watchful, and it's not uh, necessarily inaccurate. It's a lived experience of the grandparents. So the, then we transfer those fears, those um, those behaviors to our offspring, to our children through the behaviors that we are having and also through the way we do the parenting. So mm -hmm. uh, the grandchild might not have been through, then he hasn't been, he wasn't going through, he didn't experience Holocaust, but he was experiencing the same kind of trauma. I see the same with uh, clients that their parents went through um, uh, Armenian genocide mm -hmm. and how, you know, parents uh, experiences impacted their uh, parenting and now uh, their children had this way of uh, it impacted their core beliefs on how the lens that they they see the life through mm. um, and they might not be aware of it but at times it it shows up in their life and uh, it kind of uh, caused issues because we're no longer in dangerous situations. Um, and I think it's fantastic. So many people are doing this this great research on this topic. And I think, um, yes, so I think it's a, unfortunately in day and age, 
uh, it's a relatively common experience for many people of different races and different experiences. Wow. I'm sure too, that's something that a lot of people have considered or wondered about, but maybe never had a term for it. I think that term is interesting that it labels that phenomenon that's probably been going on forever, but knowing that there's a legitimate term for what that is, is already a step in recognizing that it's happening and then handling it. Because, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like I hadn't heard that term till very recently. And there's been, you know, some like New York Times articles about it and, and stuff like that. Right. right. And, and I think it's, yes, with trauma, uh, we don't necessarily need to know, a side note, that we don't need to know uh, the specific reason so we can get treatment. I mm -hmm. think just knowing that, as you said, knowing this is a symptom of trauma can help people to navigate the way they can change this uh, dysfunctional way of life and thought that can uh, change relationship and change the way of life for them. Yeah. And going, talking to someone like you is probably very helpful for that too and uncovering what you may not recognize as intergenerational trauma. Because I'm sure there's also a lot of people who just wouldn't understand where their own behavior is rooted and how they were parented. And that's super fascinating. And then, okay, so this is like my question slash just sort of a rant. And I apologize because it's mostly just me being angry. But um, I feel mm -hmm. like lately, I'm not alone, but many of my female, specifically more heterosexual friends, are really getting disillusioned with dating and the whole era of the app. I myself, I'm in a happy relationship, but leading up to that, it was hell. And I felt like there was a crisis of just not enough good men for all the wonderful women, women I knew in the world. And I was like, delete, I was downloading, you know, Tinder and deleting it immediately. And I know several heterosexual female friends who have felt that way as single women who have sworn off dating entirely. They just say, you know what? I can focus on my career. I have amazing friends. Maybe down the road I can, you know, platonically co-parent with someone or get IVF and do it on my own. I really don't need the BS in my life. And I, one, I wonder if this is partially, like if there's any foundation in that or if I'm just, it's my own confirmation bias. And then two, I was also wondering if like that is something that could be in response to the current culture. Because right now we have Trump in office and like the Me Too movement and all this stuff. I feel like people are becoming more and more aware of some of the gender dynamics in the world. And so I just want to ask about that. Like, is this something that is founded or um, am I just like an angry feminist? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, if, if it's your experience, then that's accurate because we all to we are all able to have our experiences. Yes, and but what I noticed, it's funny you say female. I was just having this conversation with my husband the other day that I half of my practice are male, and they they share the same thing that you you just shared with me. What? <laughs> How hard Wait, it men is. Men have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> women are telling me about all these horror stories that they wow. have, and you know I feel we don't hear it because usually unless. Usually male, there are in therapy or like, you know, a certain kind of situation. They, they usually don't open about it. But it's interesting that I feel like it's a experience of both gender. And I, if they, I guess like the way I look at it, it seems like, you know, we got somehow this illusion of having more options these days mm -hmm. with 
all sorts of apps and all sorts of technology. And it, it can, a time can get overwhelmed us. It's hard to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And it can be overwhelming. So I think it, it is harder right now to find someone that truly matches uh, your interests, truly uh, kind of share the same value because there's so much, so many options out there. And the internet is not the best way of kind of sorting who would be a good partner. But it's interesting. I hear it from both both parts. That's so interesting. Okay, I owe an apology to every man I've ever met because I don't think I fully understood or listened to them. And I also think with the app stuff, the one thing that I noticed um, with a lot of people that I've talked to who are on them is this feeling like you have more options in your pocket at all times, even if you're dating someone who's good. I feel like I've heard stories from friends where it's like there's a pressure to keep playing the field because you have Tinder in your pocket. So it's like, I don't know, like they're good, but I could do better. Or like, you know, I'm not going to settle because I can date endless amounts of people. I just have to set up a date through this app. I don't know if it's different than it used to be, but it does feel just from my observations that people tend to be more noncommittal maybe than they were, just like they feel like they have more options. So then they want to exercise that. I don't know if that's founded in reality. I, I can totally see that because, you know, uh, all we need for a happy relationship is good enough. Mm-hmm. And there's this illusion of what if there's someone out there, my quote unquote soulmate, because re- good relationships are imperfect. But I think, as you mentioned, this apps and this technology gives us this illusion. There is there is that opportunity out there. And maybe this good enough relationship is not perfect and you you might need to be uh, you might need to find the mm-hmm. kind of exact perfect match. Yeah. And people are always posting on Instagram their adorable couple photos and we're seeing a lot of all the good stuff, but we don't realize how much work is going into people's relationships and all the imperfections. So I think some of some of the culture now is a little confusing for people who are who are single and and figuring out that world. Wow. Blew my mind on the idea of empathy for men. Very good idea. I really like that. Um, Just a caveat, I feel like I was very negative about dating. I have a wonderful boyfriend and he's really nice. Okay. (laughs) Um, So this has all been so mind-blowingly helpful. Um, Are there any other like things that you just want to share with our listeners of general advice or, you know, I think there's a lot, I think, I don't know if we have like demos, but I assume it's mostly women who listen to this podcast. I'm going to say, um, if you have any advice or any parting wisdom, no pressure. Sure, sure. I think one thing is, you know, sometimes when it comes to sexuality, because we don't get good sex education, we don't have enough information, we might struggle with something, but we might assume that there's there's how you were wired or there, there there's no hope to change things. But if there's something that you're struggling with and it's not working for you, that's something you can absolutely change, whether through therapy or taking classes, because I think sexual health is extremely important. I see people when their sexuality improves, uh, their confidence improves, the way they see themselves changes. So I encourage you to make sure you're you are having good sexual health, you're kind of putting your sexual health as a priority. I love that. And there's so many resources out there. One of them is obviously going to your practice and your podcast, obviously. Um, And I really want to thank you for taking the time. This is super enlightening. 
and really great. And um, I hope everyone checks out the Sexology podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nas. It was lovely to talk to you. Have a great day. Thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.